welcome to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Um, welcome back to all of our listeners today. We are incredibly lucky to be speaking to Jen Gill from MTB Direct, an online retailer enabling Australian mountain bike riders to buy high quality parts, clothing and accessories locally at globally competitive prices. This business is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's um, been listed in the AFR Fast 100, Deloitte Tech, Fast 50, Smart Companies, Smart 50, the Telstra Business Awards and Westpac Businesses of Tomorrow. Jen, thank you so much for giving us your time today because we have an incredibly busy schedule, I imagine, um, as well as also having, you've got a mountain bike course in your backyard. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So we, uh, like many people, we, we did a bit of a tree change over the last sort of 18 months and we moved to an area sort of in the Gold Coast hinterland. Wow. And uh, we've got a couple of hectares there and what you know, it's it's the sort of land that most people would look at and say, oh, I can do nothing with that because it's steep and lots of trees and and uh, you know ragged kind of terrain. And so, Michael, uh, my husband built a mountain bike track. <laughs> Fantastic! And how are you on said mountain bike track? And do you move it around a bit to make it harder? Yeah, once yeah. You so kind of we've, got a, we've got a heap of different sort of tracks and stuff there. Um, I haven't done too much riding there. I I, I did. Um, I was pregnant when we moved in. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, it's steep. So I'm I'm a bit of a sook on that kind of stuff. But my uh, my six year old and my eight year old get out there and ride all the tracks. So <laughs> oh my goodness! And and how do you go? You know, just as a fellow mother with the potential broken bone, because you ride, so you kind of get the safety element. Whereas I'd just be terrified. I think like we we have always. Um, the kids have always worn helmets. They've always worn safety gear. For any like anyone listening who's a parent who's got kids on bikes, helmets all the time. Like we've just made it so normal that they wear all this safety gear. So there's no like, mm, when we wear my helmets, like we you're not riding your bike, you know, put your helmet on. So we try to keep it as safe as possible. And um, and I guess you just have to you gotta trust them at some point, you know, you've got to trust them to find their own limits. Um the the girls are both relatively sensible though you know you can see they have that they probably have my risk aversion <laughs> more so than than my husband's risk taking so they'll do stuff they'll push their limits like just a little bit just sensibly so there's not too much stuff where it's like heart in my mouth only I like that concept of you know at some point you've kind of got to let them you know make their own decisions and, and push their limits is that something that you apply to your staff base? Because you've got a really interesting way of working. And, you know, I've sat on many panels with you and listened to kind of this amazing story where you've had, you know, workers in Colorado and workers mm-hmm. in Brisbane and workers all over the place around the world. And you, you managed to make them really connected and part of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how does that play out in practical terms? Yeah. So, I guess we were a remote team long before everybody else had to do it. You know, so sort of the last two years for us have been pretty much, you know, situation normal in that sense. Um, we're quite used to having, yeah, a distributed workforce. So, I mean, there's elements of that that are communication. There's definitely elements of that that are trust, right? Where you just sort of have to trust that people are working towards the end goal. You're not there, you know, sort of hovering behind them and seeing what they're doing, you know, passing in the hallways and that kind of thing. There's pros and cons of that. Like I'm, I'm not going to say that it's the absolute be all and end all way to run an organization. 
But for us, it's been really good because we're we're quite a niche. Like you know, mountain biking is is definitely a growing sport in terms of popularity, but it's still not that every second person um, you know is really into it. So when we're recruiting, the ability to be able to go out wherever and find mountain bikers to be part of the team for those sort of roles where it's quite essential um, has been really really important. So we've we've really made that work. And how big are you guys now? Uh, I think we're sort of nudging around 40 staff um, and, yeah, all still quite remote. We've got a team in Australia, team in New Zealand, uh, and our fulfilment is all third-party logistics. So those staff are all customer service, marketing, inventory, all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. And, you know, it's been such an amazing kind of growth trajectory. How did that come about? I mean, you know, your business has got a really interesting story mm-hmm. and obviously now it's kind of, going on this journey of its own. I mean, what, what has that journey been like in terms of investors and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things? Yes. Yeah, so the business, I guess the, the genesis of the business was um, when my now husband, Michael, was in high school. He's, he was literally one of those person, one of those people who started a business to solve his own problem. You know, So he couldn't find the bike parts that he wanted. So he started trying to source them directly from the brands or the wholesalers. And then he sold some to his mates and then suddenly he's like, I might be onto something here. There's a gap in the market. And so he just filled it himself. Um, you know, fast forward a couple of years and him and his business partner, who is now our business partner, Tim, had set up a store in Brisbane, a mountain bike store. They traded that for quite a number of years. And, you know, at some point in that journey, I, you know, I, I came along as the girlfriend, then wife. And, you know, we could all see that online was going to be a really big part of commerce, you know, and that people were increasingly buying things online. At that point, people were still very skeptical, um, particularly of tactile things like bike parts. No, you know, I don't think it's really going to work. I think people are going to want to touch and feel and they're going to need someone to help explain it to them and they're going to need someone to fit the part. And I guess kind of going back to what we were saying before, we, we gave customers a bit more credit I suppose, and trusted customers a bit more that they could do their own research. They could figure out what they needed, what they wanted, and confidently buy it online. So we could see that that online was going to work. Took us a couple of years, you know. A great idea is one thing, but executing on it's a totally different thing. So it took us a couple of years to kind of get our butts into gear and get an online store going. Um, so we started MTB Direct about. Oh my gosh, it's nine and a half, nearly 10 years ago, I think. Oh my gosh, I just had to do the math and realize it's 2022. Nearly 10 years ago, we started MTB Direct and um, we subsequently sold the bike store just to focus on online. So that's gone from sort of a, a bootstrap business that came out of that other physical retail store to one that's now private equity backed. We took on some um, investment partners uh, about a year ago, which has been incredible for the business in terms of going from having a big list of things that we want to do and we're like, oh, you know, if I had the money, we do this and this and this. Well, now we do. <laughs> so um, now it's a case of, again, of, of executing on that on all that good stuff. And what's the process for that like? I mean, so for many of our listeners who are thinking about, you know, raising capital or, mm-hmm. or taking on investors, you know, when you've been a really tight-knit team, particularly for you, you know, you guys are absolutely, you know, like family and our family in many mm-hmm. respects. 
how is it to bring in someone who you may have just met or, you know, is part of an investor pack or, you know, tell me how that works. Um, so we, we went and engaged advisors, um, which is something I would probably highly recommend to start with if you're committed to finding in an investment partner and, you know, of a, of a reasonable kind of magnitude. I think doing it yourself would be so, so hard. I know some people do it, but having been through that process now, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's so intense. That process of just going out and finding these people, meeting with all these people and then going through like a due diligence process. So we engaged advisors. We worked with Deloitte and they were, they were fantastic to take us through the process. They went out and found a whole heap of people for us to meet with. You know, really there was a lot of just kind of, BS testing people, really, <laughs> um, you know, sitting down and kind of going, um, you know, is there a fit here? Like, did they see potential in our business, in our model? Did they like what they were hearing? But did we like what we were hearing? You know, did, did we like the trajectory that they were going to probably want to put our business on? Did we like them as people? <laughs> we like, I think I can sit down and, and have a chat to you or I don't really like where you're coming from. So it was really a very mutual process, you know, because in the back of our mind, we sort of thought, well, if all we want is capital, you know, this sort of year, I'm going to get a loan. You know, we, 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 just, we can get money. That's not necessarily exclusively what we're looking for here. We're looking for somebody to really actually help us grow the business. So we want a partner, so we need to like them. <laughs> so it was a bit of that. It was meeting with people once we kind of narrowed it down to the partners that, that we are working with now with Odyssey. Met with them, you know, quite a number of times, continually just kind of getting to know them, getting to know what their strategy was, how we fitted in their portfolio, where they saw the business going. And it's this kind of mutual kind of dating sort of thing. I was going to say, it sounds like business dating. Did you like have a list of criteria as to what everybody was looking for in an investor? It's it's so important though, because like you say, you're bringing someone into something, particularly for us, um, because we'd been the partnership of myself, Tim and, and my husband, Michael. So we had this dynamic, right, of sort of a husband and wife team and like a best mate. Michael and Tim have been in business for, I'm going to age them a bit, but the better part of, you know, 15, 20 years, they've been in business together and done not much else. You know, neither of them really did anything before going into business together. I've been in business with them now for 10 years. Bringing someone else into that in any capacity is is quite a big call. So it's one that we we didn't make a sort of knee-jerk call to do that. I think that's probably the other thing is that you do have to know if that's part of your trajectory, like you think where you want the business to go. If you think you might be taking on funding at some point because you need to prepare yourself for that, you know, psychologically kind of prepare yourself for what that's going to be like and prepare the business a little bit for that as well. Like you've got to have your books in absolute top shape. You've you've got to know what you're looking for in terms of a partner and you've got to dedicate a bucket load of time to the the fundraising and investment process. And how much time did it take you? Like from beginning to end, really? Like from, okay, we're going to do this. We've engaged Deloitte. From engaging Deloitte to settlement, I think was only about four and a half, five months. Okay. Like that's a really, really fast process. Mind you, I'd been sort of talking with with the guys that we work with at Deloitte. I've been talking with them casually for probably two or three years. And we had been getting ourselves onto that path internally, probably meaningfully for maybe six months. Um, but it had been the back of our mind for at least a year or two that, you know, we wanted to have a business that whether or not we sought investment for it or sort of partner for it, we wanted it to be ready. So that then if the opportunity came up, we were we were ready for it. So but still it was a very, very 
hectic five months, particularly once you get into things like due diligence and just all that fun stuff. Like, bless all the accountants out there. <laughs> well, but, and you know, I think it is, I think as a business owner and someone that's created something and dedicated their life, you know, it's very invasive to kind of have, you know, everything kind of pulled apart and assessed and, you know, rated. And mm-hmm. it's very, um, you know, it can, you can become quite defensive in that process. And obviously you've got no option but to be open. Otherwise, you know, you can't kind of build these relationships, which is really interesting. But I think, you know, one of the most, um, incredible things about your journey and and I have been watching it now I think for a good seven years because I met you on a stage at a small business event in Brisbane many many moons ago yep and um (laughs) I don't even know whether there were children or marriages or whatever happening at that point but I I remember I guess what was really interesting to me was that you were obviously always on that I guess, precipice of what was coming and what was new and the way that you were doing things and the way that you were thinking about things was always really different. How do you pick the ideal trends to implement in your business and how do you kind of stay ahead of that technology? Oh, it's, it is massive. And I think the speed of change, you know, it, it sounds cliche, but this, it, you know, things are changing faster and, you know, industries are getting disrupted faster. And so we, you know, when, when we're looking at our strategy, we're sort of saying somebody could just come from left field tomorrow and and just totally upend what we're doing so we're we're sort of moving from a strategy of kind of thinking what's next like what's the next logical step and saying well i think everyone can see what the next logical step is what's the one after that you know so and and trying to build a strategy that's based on the thing after that because if you just move towards the next logical iteration of what you're doing, by the time you've gotten there, somebody else has already done it. Somebody else has already sort of gone around you. So strategically, that's the kind of mindset that we're having to take a little bit. But then I think the the big thing beyond that though is is you know when, when we're doing a lot of our planning, we're sort of saying you know I've got idea A, B, and C. To be honest, they're probably all good. You know, they're, they're all they've all got their merits, they've all got their downsides, they've all got their risks. We assess all of our our strategies and tactics through a lens of what's the worst thing that can happen, right? So if I do this and it doesn't work, um, what what's going to happen? How, how am I going to back this out? What's what's my what's my worst case scenario here? Can I get comfortable with the worst case scenario? Can I figure out a way to mitigate it? If yes, then it's an absolutely viable strategy. And then to a certain extent, you've just got to pick one. You know, and and not agonize over. Am I going to do this strategy or that, or you know, which one's the best one? At the end of the day, the best one's probably the one that you do. You know, and and that's kind of been, I think, our approach and why you know, particularly in that early kind of scrappy startup phase, you know, we were able to just sort of have an idea and get it done, you know, the next day and 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 just achieve stuff and achieve it pretty quickly, and and that can be quite powerful. As we get bigger, the challenge is, I think, you know, and a lot of organizations probably feel this, the challenge is to be able to keep up that momentum. It's really interesting. So the last two people I've spoken to, we've had a discussion about, is it about winning or is it about being the best? And you've just talked about what's the best strategy. And I guess, um, you know, I'm interested because 
you guys must be particularly driven to start an online business off a bricks and mortar store in a category that no one else is really playing in, in a, in a place like Australia. Oh, yes, you know, of course, mountain bikes are a big thing because we love to be outside, but where they're bigger in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. you know, is that winning factor or is that kind of revenue profit factor something that drives what you do and the choices you make or is it about being the best? That's an interesting question. So we we have always maintained um, with the business, we've always kept it profitable. So at no point have we ever had a business that is not profitable or where we're deliberately sort of striving for growth and overextending ourselves. So I, I would say over the years that we have probably not achieved, you know, some of the things and the growth and the success maybe that we might have if we'd taken a few bigger plays. Um, and that's because particularly as, you know, family-owned businesses, we just always agreed that this was our livelihood and, you know, um, this is our livelihood. And then increasingly, um, even as potentially we felt more secure with it, this was other people's livelihood. Like, you know, there's 40 people I talked about before mm-hmm. who are employed by us. It's their livelihood. So, we've, we've never had an inclination to, to sort of put all our chips on the table and go absolutely all in and sort of bugger the consequences. There's been a sense of, no, I need this to be a sustainable business. I need this to be profitable, you know, month to month, year to year. This needs to be sustainable in that sense. And that's been really important to us. You know, it's, it's not win at all cost, I suppose, for us. We've, we've always just wanted to make sure that we could sleep at night. Yeah. I mean, but also, I mean, it really is kind of best practice in business, right? Like it's really interesting because today when you obviously look at the businesses that people talk about, whether it's Amazon, whether it's, you know, some of these really fast track startups, they're not profitable. And, you know, there's billions of dollars being thrown at them in some cases. And I think for many people in micro business or who are startups, they think, you know, that's it. That's the aim. You know, you go and you get capital and you just Mm -hmm. run you know, at a target as hard as you can. Um, and oh, well, it doesn't matter about the rest of the cost, but in your case, it's, it's been about doing good business and making sure that, you know, you keep, you know, food on the table for those 40 people, as well as yourself, as well as your own families. And in effect, it's put you in a position where you had the benefit of choosing to raise capital on your terms, not out of desperation. And I think that that's really, really key, especially for people that, you know, are considering kind of going down this path. Yeah. We've, we've just always maintained that if we can't be profitable at a low scale, by what miracle will we be profitable at a higher scale? You know, because you sort of think, oh, okay, yes, there's some economies of scale there. There is, but there's not the things that come into play as you get bigger that potentially you can't necessarily plan for. And it's such a risky strategy to be like, yeah, we'll make it up. We'll just Amazon it, you know, <clears throat> good for Amazon, right? You know, and if you've got deep pockets, go your hardest. But I guess um, we've never really wanted that degree of of stress in our lives, <laughs> to be honest, you know, this is, this is our livelihood. This is what we do because we enjoy it as well. So you don't want to be in that horrible sort of pit of despair <laughs> wondering what have I done and is it all going to come together? And, you know, when it came to then finding investors, we were able to find people with a sort of similar philosophy who, you know, we've had some good conversations about some of the businesses that are out there, some of the crazy valuations that these non-profitable, you know, pre, pre-profit, pre pre-revenue businesses, like it, it's so hard to get your head around how businesses like that can have these crazy valuations. And I mean, honestly, good luck to them, but it's a really risky strategy. Um, and the investors that we partnered with are quite... Um, 
have, have a sort of down to earth to me, like logical way of, of looking at a business and its, and its current and future value that we could get comfortable with as well. Yeah. Look, I think that's a great message. I mean, for really anyone. You know, because we we always talk about certainly with the National Retail Association, making sure that businesses have, and you know, particularly small business, whether it's you know franchisees or cafe owners or whoever it is, understanding those basic balance sheets. You know, understanding you know how many cups of coffee you've got to sell in order to pay your rent. Yeah. You know, people think I'm you know I'm I'm going to make a change. I'm going to get out of corporate services and just open a, a coffee shop, and then and we see so many fall, especially in a time like now. Mm. Um, you know, where it has been so volatile. How has COVID been for your business? I mean, honestly, I, I feel following on from sort of referencing hospitality and, and stuff like that, um, I, I feel awful in saying COVID has been very kind to us. You know, we, we right place, right time. We, we sold bike parts on the internet. So, you know, all that, and, and we're already a remote business, like the stars aligned for us in the sense of, well, these were so many trends that, that came up. So everybody wanted to start riding bikes. They wanted to start getting outside. They wanted to social distance, which is very easy to do on a mountain bike trail. You don't really come into contact with, you know, close contact with anybody, you know, and, and, and buying things online. So we saw, you know, we, we have really benefited from some of the, the trends that, that came about that um, which have stuck, I think, you know, and, and that I think is a, um, a good thing for a lot of businesses and sort of businesses that are going to come into the space that, you know, the, the preference for shopping online, it sure seems to be, to be sticking. And, you know, for us, the sport, cycling, mountain biking, a lot of people have gotten into it and they've, they've gotten the, the bug and they're, they're sticking with it too. Well, we know it definitely is, is sticking. So, for our listeners, Australians spent 9.5% of what they would normally spend annually online prior to COVID-19 and it's currently sitting at about 16.9%. It was only ever predicted to go to about 20% over five years, but we've seen it move this far in 18 months and we know it's absolutely not stopping. It's even from our Christmas figures, you know, if Christmas online was up by 51% in comparison to last year, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars now being spent by Australians online. And, you know, that outdoor factor is just huge. How did you go in terms of supply chain? Because, I mean, supply chain is something we talk about a lot. Bikes mm-hmm. were definitely referenced to something that was really hard to get, yeah. especially during that Christmas period. I mean, how do you go about diversifying your supply chain to make sure you've got that stock? Yeah. So, um, supply chain is, is still a problem, actually, with some of our parts. And we're, you know, we're having brands who are asking us to forecast out, you know, what, what, what are we going to be buying in 2023? <laughs> like, I don't know. We're not going to be buying in 2023. 2023 like that's that's crazy um lead times of one to two years on on products that's it's just wild now industry's never seen anything like it i suppose you know a 90-day lead time felt extreme kind of thing mm-hmm. it took us all a little while to to catch up and to also realize that nothing was changing anytime soon um i think we thought it would sort of it would level out or that supply would sort of come from somewhere. In hindsight, I don't know what we thought was going to happen, but I think there's a lot of in hindsight that applies to the last the last two years, basically. So, we, we focused a little bit on um, trying to source, you know, alternative products and generate more demand for those products. So, essentially, you know, in, in our sport, there do tend to be flagship products that people are looking for, brands that people are looking for, go-to brands. But there's actually, a, you know, a plethora of alternatives out there. They're just not necessarily 
the dominant brand or the, the one that people really know about, particularly when they're getting into the sport. So people tend to get into the sport and then they want that shoe because that's what their mate Jimmy rides. So I guess they want one of those and they want that helmet because that's the only brand they've heard of. So it really, I think it put the onus on us as a retailer to educate customers on what brands were available. You know, we've got hundreds of brands of product. We just needed to kind of surface those a little bit better to people, you know, rather than being somewhere where you could just come and find the thing you were looking for. We needed to become the business where we could help you find an appropriate product to meet your needs, which became sort of, you know, like a a digital merchandising and advertising kind of piece. And we did, we saw people watching more kind of digital or or video during that period. They're watching longer kind of educational sports. I mean, how do you, do you engage with influencers? I mean, how do you get that kind of message out there? If you're like, don't buy this product, buy this one, Um, (laughs) you know, do you find somebody that everybody knows and send them stuff to talk about or how does it work? Yeah, there can be a little bit of that. Part of it is just through our database. We have a really, you know, quite a quite a large database of mountain bikers. So if we can go out to them and say, hey, we've got these shoes, for example. So there was a, a very popular brand of mountain biking shoes that became very, very difficult to get for a variety of reasons. And then all these other brands started popping up. And some of them actually have really great stories. You know, they are sort of more independent brands or something like that. So then it was just for us to try and communicate that social media through our email database um, and through sort of ranging on site and, you know, AdWords and all, all sorts of stuff. There's lots of tools at your disposal, but you just do have to change your mindset a little bit. And I think that's probably the big thing, um, which I mean, so many businesses had to do, right? Changing that mindset, you know, the cafe that had to change its mindset from dining to well, how am I going to get food to people? Not necessarily through through dining, I've, you know, I've just got to just totally change the paradigm. For us, there was, you know, I, I think a few instances of that, but just probably not as seismic as some other industries. And when you kind of look at your business partners, I mean, what persona do you all play? Because you must all play a really interesting role, yeah. I imagine. So, yeah. I mean, who are you? Are you, are you the organized <laughs> one that's am, like, this is I where am, we're going? <laughs> I am the sensible, risk-averse devil's advocate. So we have, um, so as I said, there's my husband, Michael, and our business partner, Tim. And um, Michael and Tim both, I mean, they're, they're mad keen mountain bikers. They've been th- throwing themselves down mountains on, on push bikes since, you know, they were in, in primary school. So they're more inclined to to just do it. You know, they've they've both... Their, their catchphrase is she'll be right <laughs> she'll be right we'll just do it she'll be right my catchphrase is whoa hang on <laughs> like we, we just we just need to bring that in a little and, and have a bit of a think but it actually works really well it's quite complimentary i think so we probably all sit on a spectrum and you know i'm not going to tell you who's on the far end of the the risk-taking spectrum but one of the boys is i'm on the risk averse end and so we we then are able to kind of just pull each other along. And I think that's probably the key characteristic that we have in terms of where we work is, you know, me on my own, I might not take the same kind of entrepreneurial risks that that we need to take. Whereas, you know, the boys might be more inclined to just shoot first and ask questions later. My job's to ask the questions and and we work really nicely there. And I mean, going back to what we're talking about at the start, we have immense trust in one another and that's been really, really important. So I think the other key component of how we work is particularly in the early days, we all had our areas for which we were responsible. And, you know, we, we didn't have position descriptions or anything, although I, I don't think that would have been a bad idea. I, I tend to think, you know, if you are in business, 
with a business partner, it's probably not a bad idea to, to write down, well, this is my area and this is yours. And we tended to take a bit of a, um, like a captain's call approach, if you will, to different topics. So if it was something IT and systems related, um, we could all have our opinions on it. We could all, you know, have robust discussion about it. But at the end of the day, we'd probably back Michael's call on that because, you know, that's his area. And if he feels passionately about it, we'd back it. If it's to do with our stock and inventory, we'd back Tim's call on that. If it's to do with our marketing or branded communications, they'd back me on that. So, um, having those clear areas as well probably really helped and, and has um, avoided a lot of, of disagreement over the years. I think we, you know, people often ask me, should you go into business with your spouse? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, why, why would you do a thing like that? Um, but it works amazingly for us, you know, but I, I can't say that I would ever say to someone, it's a great idea. It, it's theoretically an awful idea. <laughs> One of the things that I have been asking people um, on this show is what are you reading or watching at the moment? Oh, what am I re- Well, so I have a six-month-old baby, which you may know, um, who sleeps sort of woefully. So, I mean, like a baby. <laughs> he sleeps like a baby. Um, so, I'm just watching a lot of Netflix at the moment, really. What on Netflix though? What in particular? I'm what genre are you in? Moment. I am watching, I'm watching Shit's Creek at the moment actually, yep. which is just so lighthearted and funny and I can turn my brain off. Um, and then what am I reading? I am reading, I just read actually, <laughs> I've been rereading Harry Potter for a reason. So my eldest is eight and she is a prolific reader. And I was like, is Harry Potter okay? Like, I can't remember if it's all right for her to read. I guess I'll just have to read it myself. So I've been working my way through Harry Potter. Fantastic. Because I, when I was, um, certainly with my newborns, I watched at the time, I think there was only maybe 10 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> and I watched all 10 seasons oh, yeah. with my first and then Lucifer <laughs> was the other one that I got through with my second <laughs> and Harry Potter I took to listening to on tape. Oh, wow. Yes, because you can do it anywhere at any time of day and uh-huh. sometimes I think, you know, when you're in that newborn world, you need some adult interaction. Mm-hmm. So podcasts and books on tape are absolutely a mom's best friend, right? <laughs> I know it's such such a weird uh, a weird situation. Uh, you know, it's been for me. It's been such a crazy year going from you know raising investment and funding, and then suddenly I'm you know up at two a.m. just watching Netflix. <laughs> I bet you have your best ideas. I used to send the team. I must have driven them to distraction, like AFR articles on things in retail, yeah. and because <laughs> I would just be up at all times of day yeah. um, thinking about you know God knows what at the time. So yeah. I completely understand that paradigm between I've read going on a bear hunt probably every night for two years Uh. and can recite it to you and, you know, what's happening in terms of statistics for online retail and crime. Exactly. Somebody somebody sent me an email the other morning and, you know, it was was there 5.30 a.m. and it was my 4.30 and they were like, you know, excuse the early email and they had a reason and I was like, it's all good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. I'm here 24 hours. Yeah, exactly. I don't don't go home. (laughs) That's it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We We have absolutely enjoyed hearing about your story and your approach to business and we can't wait to see 
see what comes next for MTB Direct and we'll we'll absolutely be watching. Um, so we'll also can't wait to see you at Retail Best Retail this year Best, as well. I know, in, in, live and in person. Live and in person. It'll be amazing. I cannot wait. And there won't be a lockdown this time. So we'll be, we'll all be there. Just It'll be fantastic. Sure, make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. So thank you awesome. so much. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to chat. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.